All right, let's take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door. Let's also take out your Bibles. We are not going to have them on the screens today. And so if you thought you could leave your Bible at home, oops, there should be one under the seat in front of you. We're going to have a great time today going through God's Word. We are in part 75 of our Being Jesus series, and I entitled today's message, Ferociously Faithful. And I want to ask you a quick question. Do you think that faithfulness is at an all-time strong in America? Yeah, me either. I don't think so. Um, uh, and, and there's a lot of reasons why I think that is. Uh, I've talked about them ad nauseum in the past. I don't want to get too into it because uh, it's kind of like, you know, saying the same thing over and over and over. But just understand the impact that mobility in the world today, move, being able to move around very rapidly, Young couples going, man, we got married. Now we're going to go move across the country, stuff like that. Mobility, technology, right? Technology where everything is outdated the minute you buy it, right? You know what I mean? Uh, where you know that when you take your computer home, it's outdated, yeah? And you know that the minute they release the new iPhone, they already have the next iPhone already designed. Uh, and they're just waiting to, for you to get used to this one so they can release another one. Um, so that at all times you're thinking there is something better to come. Therefore, I don't want to commit to this right now. So commitment is at an all time low. It's very, very hard, especially for the younger generations to commit to anything because everything's changing so rapidly. They don't know where they're going to be. Um, for example, it used to be when I started ministry that you were told to have a vision for the church. Let's shoot out 10, 15 years. Now, all the books say three, maybe five, because everything is so rapidly flipping on you. You have no way of knowing where you're going to be. So when you have so much change, you don't want to say you're going to do something for sure. But the problem with that is that it bleeds into things that we really love. For example, it has completely deteriorated our marriages right? The idea that there's uh, every advertisement around you is telling you that your current model is not good enough. You need to look out for something else. Um, everything is saying, this is failing you. You might need to try this. When that begins to bleed into our relationships, into our marriages, we begin to watch faithfulness and commitment begin to deteriorate. When it shifts into our walk with God, where we start having this attitude of, well, I mean, I mean, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I guess you'd call me a Christian. Well, I'm kind of like a Christian. I think I'm going to be a Christian. I, I might be a Christian later on. It starts deteriorating. This idea that you would say, Lord, I'm adhering to you and nothing will move me from that place. We're having a lot of difficulty staying in that area, right? Where we would absolutely say, God, I will do everything. I will fight to be with you. I will be with you during the passionate times. I will be with you during the dry times. I'll be with you in the times when I don't even know what's up. And I'll be with you in the times when I'm all fired up, but I am with you, God, forever. That is beginning to deteriorate more and more in every year. And so I believe that there's a callback and this is what Jesus is doing in these three stories we're about to study, is in this dialogue with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, he's talking about, here's what it's going to be like when I come back, and, and here's what I need from you guys. I need you to be ready. I need you to be connected with me. I need you to know me really well, not in the last moment. I need you to know me right now. I need you to be consistent with me. I need you to be faithful with me right now. And those are the stories that we're going to be studying. But what he's doing is he's constantly telling them, watch how we are doing. Make sure that you're vibrant and alive. You don't just get to put it on autopilot, hope that everything's good in the future. You work towards it. You build into it. You want your relationship with God better tomorrow than it is today. That's really what he's calling us to. So the fill in the blank in front of you expresses a challenge. It says faithfulness shows itself, it reveals itself in trial and delay. There's two big attacks on faithfulness. One is in the short term, one is in the long term. The short term attack um, is the temptation of the moment. Let's say, for example, in our faith, you have this idea in your mind that God is going to protect you and that he's promised you uh, good things and then your life falls apart. In that moment, you are tempted to bail out and give it all up. 
because forget it. It's not what I wanted. It's not what I thought I was signing up for. And there will be a temptation on your faithfulness to cave in the moment because it's like, God, I can't handle this. I thought you were with me. It feels like you're a bad dad. feels like you're a bad shepherd. I'm out. But there's also a temptation in the long run, the temptation that over time it dwindles away. It becomes less important. Distractions step in. And it's almost like as you would look in a marriage, you know how they say the phrase, keep the fire burning. Make sure that your relationship is still vibrant and alive because here's what's interesting. Uh, According to the gurus of counseling therapy in the marriage area, argument between a couple is a non-factor in divorce. It actually has no fact. There is no correlation between that and divorce. I'll tell you what is, is contempt is distance, is disconnection. The whole idea that we drift and we become roommates and then we become distant roommates and then we keep floating away from one another. That is a terrible thing for a marriage to handle. Same exact thing with God is that it starts out with a little bit of, I was excited, I was passionate, I was fired up for the Lord. And then it starts to calm down when normal, right? You get saved, you're all up on a high. And there's a lot of that infatuation with God. And then it becomes more tested and more real. And then it has to go into a faithfulness mode. Okay, in that faithfulness mode, we get tested a lot, which is, well, I don't know. It's been a long time since anything exciting happened. And God, what have you done for me lately? And right. I mean, all this stuff begins to wear at the fabric of our faith. And it began, we begin to get distant and we begin to focus on ourselves and building our lives and building our families and worrying about retirement. And it just keeps going further away. What we must do is make sure that the cords of our attachment to things we must be faithful to are not only strong, but they are many. So for example, uh, let's take the marriage example again. It's probably the closest analogy that we have to our relationship with God in that way. And let's say, how would you keep a marriage vibrant and alive? Well, it begins with things that one chord would be friendship, right? That, that you would have a friendship that, that when everything else begins to wane or, or everything else begins to shift and move or it goes through seasons, it would be really neat if you actually liked your spouse. It'd be really neat if you actually said, you know, you're my best friend. Uh, we don't always see eye to eye. We're totally different. I get all that. But you know what? We've gone through so much together. We're buddies. And the idea is that when there's not this crazy passion thing, there is I enjoy being around you. I like doing things with you. That's awesome. But that's going to get tested. And that's going to wane. You're not always going to have the same interests. You're not always going to have these things. You're not going to be able to do the same things together. Sometimes friendships get tested. What other chords are there? What about a chord of communication where you know what's going on? with? What about the chord of learning about them continually? Not just saying, oh yeah, I know everything about them. I'm all good and conversation shuts down. What about another chord of just sheer commitment? When everything else caves, you have a commitment level. What about another chord? You understand how these are weaving together and they create something that even if six of them snap at one point, you still have more hanging in there that's going to keep you tied together. So what would that look like with God? Well, very similar things, to be honest with you. There needs to be a cord, of course, of commitment where you say, Lord, I'm with you. doesn't matter what comes. I'm with you. That's one cord. Then there's also a cord of communication. If there's no prayer life, if there's no, I'm talking to you, God, I know you've talked to me. Uh, Lord, we want to, you know, I, I want to just be in my day where I'm talking to you all the time. I'm saying, Lord, did you see that? No way. That's crazy. Look at that over there. And if, if I'm doing life together, that's another cord. And you do it to the degree where if you don't talk to God, maybe four or five days in a row, it starts to feel funky. You know what I'm saying? And then there's another chord, which is, which is learning about and being in awe. And that a lot of that comes through God's word. A lot of it comes through experiences with him where he does new things in your world and you're paying attention where you're constantly going, man, that's awesome. That keeps the passion alive 
with God. There's a reminder of the cross. There's a reminder of he did everything possible to tell me that he loves me. Then there's another chord of having people around you encouraging you in that. That's kind of what church is for. It's what smaller groups are for. It's what friendships and mentorships are for. Uh, Let me go back in time and do a little blast in the past here. Um, Do any of you gentlemen remember Promise Keepers? All right, Promise Keepers, we're going early 90s, stuff like that. And, And in Promise Keepers, it was a very unusual season for men. Ladies, you've had a lot of renditions of this, but guys, we've really had one big blowout of this where there's a big movement of faithfulness. That's what Promise Keepers was about. There's seven promises of a promise keeper. And all of a sudden you had groups of guys hanging out together saying, hey, are you loyal to your wife? Hey, are you loyal to your children? Hey, are you loyal to your church? And they began to hold each other accountable for that. Well, that's that's different. It wasn't always like that. But but when you have that, all of a sudden the guys who are wearing the promise keeper shirts have the promise keeper stickers and all that. What they were doing is they were saying, where's my faithfulness level? And at the same time, they were being held accountable for their relationship with God. And it was keeping that vibrant. That's another chord. Understand all these chords periodically wear down. Some of them snap, some of them that you just have to have multiple chords going at all times. That's how you remain consistent and strong. So when we read these stories, when Jesus tells us these parables and he keeps saying, I want you to be alert. I want you to keep awake. I want you to be watchful. I want you to be, here's what I want you to hear because he actually doesn't mean be paranoid, be scared, watch out the window. Oh, don't ever sleep. Stick toothpicks in your eyes, blah, blah, blah. That's not what he's saying, right? I mean, come on. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. All right. So no, rest is part of it. Sabbath is part of it. He's not telling you to freak out. He's not telling you to be anxious. He's telling you, be connected. He's constantly telling you before you go to sleep, make sure that we're vibrant so that when you wake up, we're vibrant. That's all he's trying to say. All right. So let's dive into this. Turn with me to Matthew 24, 42. Matthew 24, 42, it's about page 830 in the Bibles under the seat in front of you. If you want to get there a little bit faster, we have two stories in Matthew, one in Mark. I made sure to alternate those. So we had to jump around a lot in the Bible, keep you awake, right? Uh, By the way, if you ever fall asleep in church, it's kind of a compliment to me, kind of an insult to me. Um, just wanted to hit this. I know we haven't talked about this in a while in one sense. Praise God that you were so peaceful with me that you'd fall asleep. <laughs> don't you ever, don't you ever have that when you have holding a baby and the baby falls asleep and you're like, Oh, I'm such a great comforter. I'm such a good nurturer. Right? So that's how I try to take it whenever you fall asleep in church. Oh, my voice is so soothing. Makes you want to go nine night. Okay. Matthew 24, 42. Here we go. Therefore, stay awake. Ha, that's funny. (laughs) Therefore, Jesus said, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Okay, when we talk about the end times and this idea that some people see it and some people miss it, and you got to realize there's two big points of view on this that God's trying to drive at. One is kind of more specific, and that's to the Jewish people. Um, understand they missed the Messiah. So there is this massive statement of judgment where he's going, Hey, you might want to pay attention this time. There is a lot of that directed towards the Jewish people of going, okay, guys, remember why I made you. I designed you from Abraham for a very specific purpose. You are to be the salt of the earth. You're to be the light of the world. You are to be my primary demonstration of my heart and my will to the entire earth. You are my chosen ones. You are the video screen that would show the whole world what I want and what I'm about. Y'all, let me down. I come in and I, that was the most important thing. You're all supposed to go, yay, the Messiah's here. And you're like, nah, I don't think he's it. You miss that, all right? Now, that's a big blast. Now, I'm not done with you. 
God said. And you got to understand this church, we teach very strongly that God is not done with his chosen people, that God is all about the Jewish people, that they are his precious ones, that he's bringing about revival to them. And there's all kinds of redemption and there's promises. And so, I mean, we are so pro Jewish in this congregation. I need you to know that, but there is an element to where they've had to walk through some corrections, right? There's a lot of that in these stories. But if it's true for them, then it's also true for the church. The church is kind of what's called grafted in, or they got on the coattails of the Jewish people to where they became non-Jews, Gentiles, and Jews that are the true church. They are now the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And they're the drama by which you display out to the world. And that 24-7 we're ambassadors for the kingdom, right? I mean, that's our job. So we also are getting the warnings. Hey, don't miss this. Come on. We are locked in. Do what you were built to do. I put you down here. Let's go ahead and handle that job, right? So that's why you got two big themes going on at all times. Let's just keep those in mind. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into or literally dug through. Therefore, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Okay, let me clarify something. Remember how I tell you that there's things in the Bible I don't like. There's things that Jesus does that I don't like. Okay, this is one of them. All right, there's a lot of these in the end times discussions. I can't stand this metaphor. Okay, here's why. I grew up in the late 70s. I grew up in the early 80s. Thief in the night was a huge deal. Thief in the night, that phrase, Jesus is coming like a thief in the night, scared the living daylights out of me as a kid. Because most thieves are bad guys, are they not? Come on. And the idea that my Jesus, the one that I trusted, is going to show up and rip off my VCR <laughs> is not awesome. Right? And if you don't remember a VCR, that was a point because it's back in the 80s. Uh, hang in with me, people. All right. <laughs> Stay awake a little longer. <laughs> I hated it because it attached fear to the return of my Jesus. Let me explain why he's using that analogy because... I don't think it's the way you think it is. Here's why he uses thief. How many people come to your house totally unannounced? Here's what I would have said if I were him. I will come like Aunt Ethel. <laughs> she never gives you any knowledge of her arrival and just shows up on your front. You know, that kind of stuff. That would have been way sweeter. But okay, there's not a lot of people that just show up at your house where it's sudden and surprising. Here's all he means for his kids. If you are a child of God, here's what he means. Surprise. That's it. So he's trying to use some analogy to where, wow, I didn't see that coming. Well, whoever comes to your house like that, thieves. So he was not attaching to his children a negative view. However, to his enemies, there was supposed to be the thief motif, right? Which was... Uh, hey, enemy, who are enemies? World, the flesh, the devil, right? It's not other people. World, the flesh, the devil. Hey, enemies, be on notice. I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna show up when you have no idea and I'm gonna rip off your stuff. I'm gonna come in and take what's mine. I'm gonna step in. Satan, you have no idea when I'm gonna roll into town. There is no writing about it. I, the father kept that to himself. The angels didn't know. I didn't know on earth. Nobody knows because you know what? You think you're going to be doing well. And guess what? I'm going to shut you down. So yes, there is a way, man, right? Yeah. Praise God. There is a warning to the bad guys. I'm coming in stealth. I'm coming in fast. But to his children, it's just surprise. So if you want to think of it as a surprise party, and it's good, that would probably be a little more appropriate for you, okay? So it says this, who then is the faithful and wise slave or servant, indentured servant, one that's owned but has all access and control to the house? Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Listen up. This is deep. 
He will set him over all his possessions. Hmm. Who are servants of God? We think of it being the church. Let's be very careful here. I do not believe that in this conversation it is appropriate to use phrases of sacred and secular. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You know, we always say, is that Christian music or is that secular music, right? That distinction does not apply here. Why? Because all of God's creation is created to glorify his name. It doesn't matter whether you want to sign up for that or not. All human beings are built and designed to advance the kingdom of God, to use the resources God gave you for the world, and to praise his name. It doesn't matter whether or not you go to church. It doesn't matter whether or not you even know too much about God. You will be held accountable for being a creation in the image of God. For example, what do you think is Steph Curry's job? Everyone's like, who's Steph Curry? Golden State Warriors just shocked everybody. They won the NBA Finals. The MVP of the whole thing is Steph Curry. He's a rising star, young guy. From all details, he's a super great guy. I have no concerns about that. His job is not to become an athletic god. His job is to advance the kingdom of God. You go, well, I don't know where Steph Curry is with the Lord. Doesn't matter. I'm telling you what his job is. His job is to make sure that God's people are cared for, to make sure the world knows about Jesus, and to make sure that God's kingdom is advanced. What is Katy Perry's job? Katy Perry's job is not to become a cultural icon or a goddess in our society. Her job is to use the gifts God gave her for the glorification of his name, to watch out for other people, not to make it about her, but to make it about him. What is Howard Stern's job? It does not matter what he thinks his job is to be the king of all media. It does not matter if his whole job is merely to make money and to be successful and popular by being shocking. His job built as a human being of God, and he will be held accountable to this standard, is, is he using the resources God gave him and he is tremendously gifted? Is he using the resources and gifting to advance the kingdom and to praise and glorify his creator? Now, all people on earth, it doesn't matter who they are, your neighbors, it's you, it's your friends, it's your family. This is our job. This is our standard. And so God is moving through sacred and secular. God is moving through the great poets, the, the great politicians. But whether or not they are partnering with God, they will be held accountable for it. Do you understand that? Yeah. Now, blessed is the one that when Jesus returns, they go, look what I did. Awesome. You gave me this. This is the resources. I distributed them as you told me to. And that's kind of an important understanding is distribution. That's your job is distribution. Do you all remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000? You remember this miracle? It simply went something like this. There's a bunch of hungry people. They didn't have any food. Uh, they rip off some kid's happy meal, right? <laughs> Actually, he gave it up. He gives it to them, put it in the hands of Jesus a little bit, and then all of a sudden Jesus starts multiplying loaves and fishes, and then it says he handed it to his disciples, they then handed it to the people, yeah? Okay, their job was not to multiply loaves and fishes. Their job was to distribute what the kingdom resources gave to them, right? So in the same way, you are to give away what God gives you. It's not your job to go try to find more. It's not your job to try to make up or fake more. Your job is to give what God has given you. There's nothing wrong with pressing into God. But what I'm telling you is your job is to be connected to the resource giver and then give freely what he's given you. So for example, let's say you go, well, I don't have a lot of talents and gifts and all that. Do you have love and joy? Because your father has downloaded that into you in extreme measure. The Bible calls it extravagant. If he has given you lavishly or extravagantly, then your job is to be so filled up that you're able to give that freely. 
you're, if you are so filled with grace, your job is to give to other people grace when you don't feel like they deserve it and they don't feel like they deserve it. You understand what I'm saying? Is that our job is to distribute what he's already given us. I think a lot of us are not plugged into the Lord and we're not getting very filled up. And so we feel very empty and we don't give anything away. You understand what I mean? So our job is to remain connected to the conduit or pipeline by which things are coming through. If let's say your neighbor needs a physical need fulfilled, they do not have groceries, then if God gave you something into your bank account, that then makes you the conduit to do that. Now, if you are completely have less uh, uh, available resources than they do, then God didn't give that to you. Do you understand? Your job is not to go rip off someone else and give it to the poor. You're not Robin Hood, right? Your job is to give what God gave you. And if he has filled you up with the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all that, you're to give that away. Open, open arms, constantly giving. Your job is as an ambassador to the kingdom, if one cubicle over, your coworker just lost her husband and she is crushed and you hear her weeping. On behalf of the kingdom, you say, I have a full reservoir of love and grace and prayer. And you step around the cubicle wall and say, hon, can I pray for you? And when you begin to pray, the kingdom resources pour through you into her heart. That's what we do. See, it all started in the Garden of Eden. God had something amazing. And he put two little dirt bags in there. Okay, well, right, all right. Just little mix them up together. Well, look, hey, look, kids. And one's bone, I get it, whatever. And the idea, the idea is that he said, hey, kids, I want you to take care of my garden. Well, we've all been responsible for the garden ever since. Our garden's kind of messed up. Uh, We're responsible for our systems. We're responsible for the world. We're responsible for other people. Why? Because God has made us equipped to do something about it. All right. All right. Let's let's keep going. Uh, It says this. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. Man, that guy's taking so long. Maybe it's all about me now. And begins to beat his fellow servants. You're like, well, that's kind of extreme. All right, let's just call it mistreatment of other people. When you get selfish, you become mean. That's just how it works. You become uh, miserly. You become resistant. You become skeptical. When you're trying to defend your own little kingdom, that means you have to fight all the other kingdoms as opposed to being there for other kingdoms, right? Uh, Let's say he eats and drinks with drunkards. Okay, real quick side note. You ready for another tangent? Okay, here's the deal. I want to talk about what the problem is with getting drunk, okay? Because the Christian world has this way wrong. There's this weird stigma about, oh, drunkards. Man, there's drunkards. I I don't even know a drunkard. I don't even know what that means. Uh, And is it only alcoholics? What, What are we talking about, right? Okay, here's what it means. Here's the real problem with getting drunk. It's selfish. That's it. Quit making it something else, like as if your selfishness and your inability to be open to God is somehow better than theirs. Okay, it's not. It's selfishness. When you get hammered, it's saying, God, I'm offline. I have zero interest in hanging with you. I do not want to serve you. I do not want to do your stuff. This is me time. Now understand how alcohol is designed and all that. The Bible has a very different view than the modern day church about alcohol. There's times in the Bible where it's like, that dude needs a drink. You know, I mean, it was like, dude, you're dying. You need some serious alcohol. Okay, that's there in the Bible. It talks about heaven, right? In heaven, well, there's alcohol and there's and there's this. And Jesus is like, I'm making better alcohol than you, you know, and on all this water to wine thing. And there's all this, but what's interesting is there's a complete shutdown when it comes to the, God, I'm no longer available to you. It's all about me. Okay, that should make us think about other areas of our lives. If you're not available to him at all right now anyway, then why are you getting mad at people who are getting drunk? That's weird. Because you're not doing anything either. So the idea is, let's just reset and say, if we are here as servants of God, then our job is to be on duty. And when any time we just say, I'm out, it's the same thing. That's why people go, well, what do you think about marijuana? 
Well, what do you think about drug use? Well, what do you think about that? I don't know. Does it take you offline? Does it take you completely out of the mix to where God can't use you? Then I got a problem with it because God has a problem with it. So he said, let's say Jesus doesn't come back right away. And we start thinking maybe he's not coming back and maybe we're really in charge and we start living for ourselves. Let's say we start mistreating other people and being selfish and getting absorbed and making ourselves a God, right? Well, then the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces. Well, that was extreme. <laughs> we're just going on a, on a rope. We just turn left right there. I don't know what happened. Uh, and put him in with the hypocrites. Well, that's a weird name for unbelievers, isn't it? Hypocrites, people pretending to be something they're not. The world is pretending to be something they're not. And they're masking over the image of God on purpose. They are made in the image of God. They are equipped with God. And yet they're trying to pretend like they're not. But they are. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that phrase is used a lot about hell. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whatever it is, it doesn't sound good, right? I mean, it sounds pretty, pretty negative. It's less about torment. You know what it's a description of? Regret. Remorse. It's that feeling of, oh, no, now I know the truth. I wasted what? Oh, I was against who? That deep in the pit of your stomach... I did everything wrong. What happened? That is called regret. That's called remorse. That's weeping and gnashing of teeth. In hell is the idea that you finally see it clearly and go, wow, I was way off base. I was living for me and it's not about me. Does that make sense? Turn with me to Mark chapter 13. Bounce to the right in your Bibles. It's the next next chapter over. It goes Matthew, Mark. Mark 13. 33. We're going to bounce back to Matthew, so you, you may want to just keep your finger there if you want. But uh, Mark 13, 33 is about 8, 850, page 850. He tells another story just like this. He says, be on guard, keep awake, or be prepared. For you do not know when the time will come that Jesus comes back. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. Those are the four watches of the Roman night, just in case you're wondering. Lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake, be prepared be connected because here's something i have to clarify if you just read through that story it makes it sound like you're supposed to always be at the door staring to see if he's going to show up do you understand that's not what he means he means do your job because when he comes back and all you're doing is just staring out the door he's going to be like what did you do with my household you're like what oh oh that's right that's great i should vacuum you know when you're trying to he's like no You're supposed to do your job. You're not supposed to just be writing charts and making up things about when's Jesus going to return. Just do your job. What did God ask you to do? Love on other people. Can we do that, please? Uh, What did God ask you to do? He told you to expand the kingdom. Can you do that? He gave you gifts and talents and love and fruit of the spirit and just use that and distribute that. Why can't we do what he asked us to do? That's our job. You don't just stare. You don't just be anxious. You don't just be paranoid. That's not what he's asking of you. He's asking you to just do what he built you to do. And that is glorious to him. All right, bounce back to Matthew. Matthew 25, 1, page, uh, let's see, 830. 25, 1. We close out with this story. Then the kingdom of heaven, or Jesus' return, will be like the 10 virgins, just young ladies, young maidens, no big attachment there. That's just their gig in the wedding story. They took their lamps, which are not little Aladdin lamps. They are torches. So on a pole, you have rags. You soak them in olive oil, light them up. Boom, you have a torch. It's for nighttime viewing, all right? So it's like a big ancient flashlight, okay? They last about 15 minutes a pop, okay? Then you got to 
re-soak them, trim off the charred ends, or if you put it out, you trim off the charred ends to re-trim them, soak them, light them up again. Okay, makes sense? Which, by the way, I have no idea what they relit them with. Like a big lighter? I don't <laughs> They all had that in their pot. I don't know. Anyway. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the groom. They're going to hang out at his house waiting for his arrival. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. That only means half and half. There's not a big deal about ten and all that. It's just five were smart and five were stupid. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. Okay, real quick. Why would you not take extra oil if your lamp lasts 15 minutes? Why would you not? I mean, just literally. It's not. Now, it says that they're stupid. uh, They're foolish, whatever. I get it. Why would you not? I'm trying to think through this logically. And the only reason I would not bring extra oil is if I was convinced I knew how it was going to go down. Man, my, what I'm going to do is I hang out by the groom's door. He shows up. I light it up and then I walk inside. Okay. I don't need extra oil when it's going to go down like that. It's going to be super fast. I already have it figured out. We're good. I don't need extra oil. So if that's the case, why would someone bring extra oil? I believe this would be the case. Um, this is actually all about him and his processional. And I have no idea how long that dude's going to take. He may stand at the door and talk for like 42 minutes. I don't know what he's going to do, but it's really not about me. I'm not the one calling the shots. And if I'm not calling the shots, I need to have extra ready for whatever he needs me to do. Do you understand why that's wise? Um, I found out in my research that, um, I've been lied to a lot (laughs) in the church uh, about weddings, uh, when I was growing up, everything was said as if it was fact, you know, the ancient weddings in Israel were like this and they told it to me. Do you understand that there's very little evidence about how weddings went, that most of it is conjecture from examining wedding scenarios from other cultures around them and then using the evidence we have and putting it together. So there's a lot of oral history and stuff like that, but really we don't know for sure. We're doing a best guess. But here is the best guess on how it goes. Starts out at the groom's house, right? There's this arranged marriage, whether they arranged it or their parents arranged it. It starts out in the groom's house. He's been working on getting it all ready for his bride that he's going to go marry. That ties into the whole Jesus, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And then I'll come back and get you to come be with me where I am, right? We all know that. Okay. So he prepares a place, then he notifies, sends out invitations to all the village and says, hey, when wedding time comes, I need you guys to be ready because we're just going to kind of spring it on you. So I need you to be ready. We'll fire out invitations at the last second and we will call you in. So the whole village is is abuzz about this thing. They know it's coming up. They then want to all be involved. So groom sets out with an entourage big old entourage it's in the daytime and they're like woo doing the long like little dun 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 hey right as they're going around and they're going around the long way through the village and the idea is to get as many people you're shaking hands because those people bring presents yay and so you're meeting and greeting everyone and getting everybody involved and it's exciting and the village is like man it's been super boring i'm so glad you got married and so they all kind of join in with him and the closer you are to the family the more important your role is But even if you don't know the family, you're still allowed to play a part. Um, Now, he's going to wind all the way around and he's going to go see his bride and they're going to do the wedding there. So whatever the wedding festivities are, that's at the bride's house. And that can go on really long. Okay. So other culture stuff, I know a lot of us are like straight up white bread um, and we do things on time and we do things in a very neat little category. There are other cultures that are like, whatever, man, I'm just going for it, you know, and, it, and, you know, they arrive 42 minutes late and it's all cool. All right. This is much more of an Eastern culture. So when they all arrive, they just do their fe- wedding festivities, their party thing, and it starts getting late. Now on the way back, the rest of the people, these virgins, stuff like that, they're all stationed throughout the area to pr- have a processional getting them all home. So you're like, I'm on stage 33. I'm at 33. All right. Do we see any view of him? You know, that kind of stuff, right? So everyone's stationed around. So then they get done and they go, yay, couples married. Let's do a big, huge party processional back to his house where they're going to live and we can have a massive banquet. 
So everybody's stationed along the way and they all start going the long route, getting more people going and it's going to take a really long time. They're going to stop and greet people and, hey, how you doing? I haven't seen you in such a long time. Oh, congratulations. Here's a cow. That kind of stuff, right? So as they're winding through, the idea is you have to have the runner guy in front of you. Runner guy goes, places everyone, places, places everyone, places. They're on their way. They're on their way. That guy, the little herald that runs out in front of you, right, is he's calling everyone to get ready. So that's where we pick up the story. All right. Pick it up at verse five. As the bridegroom was delayed, shocker, they all became drowsy and slept. Now, nobody gets busted for sleeping. They slept because they're exhausted. All right, that's not a big deal. It's all cool. God likes sleep too. But at midnight, there was a shouting notification. Hey, here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Places, everyone, places. That's what he's doing. He yells out to everyone. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. Cut off the ends, stick it back in the oil. Boom, big lighter. You're good right? Hey, and you're holding your torch there because it needs to be a beautiful, it's at night. We're at midnight now. And now it's this big shiny thing. So when they come around the corner, the couple's like, Hey, there's this house. This is so awesome. Right? And then the fool, it says, and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. Uh Oh, he's taking too long. So you fire up your torch And you're like, I'm totally good for 15 minutes. What if he takes 32 minutes? And you're like, "Uh uh-oh, I got to get more oil. And so it says they asked some of the wise for their extra oil. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Now, does that just sound rude? Oh, I can't believe you don't have any oil. What's wrong with you? You should go get more oil, right? Is that, I mean, it was it. Is this just like a snotty thing? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so, because here's why. If it's truly about the bride and the groom, and you go, hey, I'm going to share my oil, and everybody's torch goes out, you just shut down the whole party vibe. You screwed up the whole thing. So you have to look and go, listen, I would share it with you, but do you understand somebody has to be alert and have their torch going? No, I can't share it with you. Sorry, you got to go to the dealership, right? And while they were going to buy, where the heck are you getting oil at midnight? Is it like the 24-hour oil mart, right? You know, I got, I got a Slurpee and I got extra oil. And you're like, what? as they come back, you know, and you're like, what, what are you doing? While they were going to buy, do you guys read the Bible like that, by the way? <laughs> Slurpee edition, stuff like that. I do. (laughs) While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him in the marriage feast and the door was shut. Oh, look, a doorkeeper that does his job. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he says, listen up, this is deep. I don't even know you. Watch, therefore, for you don't know the day or the hour. Okay. Now, of course, if we're going to talk about real life, they probably would have been like, oh, Jenny, I can't believe you're late. Okay, come on in. Um, but this is a parable talking about the kingdom of heaven. So it's very extreme. The extreme was door shut. You're out. Sorry. I don't know if you're a bad guy. I don't know what's going on, but if you really were part of the couple, you wouldn't be arriving back in like this. We're at the end of the processional. You knew your job. You might be somebody else. that's just waiting to wedding crash. We have no idea, but we're not letting you in. So what, what does that teach us? Teaches us a couple things. Number one, it teaches us that there are certain things you can't borrow. You understand what I'm saying? Remember I told you last time we were together, it doesn't matter who you're married to. Your faith has got to be your faith. doesn't matter who your parents are. doesn't matter who your kids are. doesn't matter what people group you come from. Do you or do you not have a personal relationship with Jesus? But even more so, I think the lesson is this. There's some things you can't rush at the end. Some things you can't do. Sometimes it's too late. Love, relationship, faith cannot be rushed, right? If I, if I came up to you, I'm like, hi, my name's Lance. Love me. Okay. First of all, that's creepy. <laughs> but do you understand you can't do that? 
You can be impressed, you can be infatuated, you can be a lot of things, but you can't love me. Because love actually, it has to develop over time. If I said, I want you to trust me, you're not going to trust until trust is built. You have no reason to trust me until trust is built. So that you can't rush. Relationship, therefore, you cannot say, are we close right now? Well, no, we can't be close right now. That's what shared experiences and walking together. So you can't rush that stuff. What does that have to do with Jesus? Do you realize the entrance into heaven is based upon your connection with Christ? Love, relationship, and faith, none of which can be rushed. Because here's the problem. If fear is your motivator and you start saying things to me like, no, 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 I totally love you. I'm going to question your motives, right? I'm not going to feel like that's legit because you're compelled by another reason. Let me use a rather harsh analogy. There are many couples that end up in the counseling office and we'll pick on the men here. And it goes something like this, man, man, I got to tell you, she's, she's leaving me. I can't believe it. Can't believe she's leaving me. She's like, yeah, we've been problems in our marriage for like 15 years and I'm totally ready to change. How come you weren't ready to change two weeks ago? Oh, really? So now you're in, I'm questioning your motives, my friend. Oh, you're doing it out of fear. You're doing it because now you've lost something. You're doing it because now you can no longer contain her or control her. Is that a problem with that? So now you want to do this. Oh, now you love. Now you're super motivated. You know what, buddy? Might be too late. This whole business about now we're just going to try to make it all up. Do you understand that the point is to work on it now before we get in the counseling office? Do you understand that our job is to keep it alive and vibrant during the boring times when you keep going, I don't think there's anything wrong with our marriage. Let me tell you right now, everyone married, there's something wrong with your relationship. What are you talking about? No, we're doing good. Then make it stronger. We don't just play this game of it's just going to sit the way it is. It deteriorates over time. Unless you build into it, unless you invest in it, it's going to grow distant. So this is the problem. Jesus returns. No, wait, seriously, I have like a, I have a flower or I have something for you. I have a card here. I... So now you're motivated because you're freaked out. That's not love. That's fear. That's not relationship. And you're now impressed with me. You're, you can probably jump as far as infatuation because now you see me as I am, but that's not what I'm looking for. So do you understand why Jesus keeps giving warnings ahead of time? Hey guys, is our relationship okay now? I, I haven't come back yet. And you know what? I may not come back in your lifetime or I may come back this afternoon. What I'm telling you is, where are we at? Is our relationship vibrant? Well, I don't know. I haven't really looked at that. Well, don't you think you should? Because I understand you're busy working on your family and you're busy making money and you're busy trying to build a business. And I know you're busy with all those other things. But wouldn't it be foolish to spend everything you have on that which you will lose and neglect the one thing you will keep? Hmm. Would it not make more sense to say, Jesus, are we okay? Now, sometimes in relationships, there's some consistent habits you can do in a marriage, in your relationship with Jesus that pay off. Sometimes there's special events. Sometimes, right? All these same things apply. But are we doing anything to grow closer? Are we doing anything to advance? Do you love Jesus more now than you did last year? And do we really have to only do it in years? Or can we say, do I love Jesus more today than I did yesterday? I think his whole point is, hey, everyone, I don't want any of you embarrassed when I show back up. I don't want you trying to grab stuff and figure out if you can find me a present. I just want you. And I want you now. I don't want you then. I don't want a deathbed conversion. I don't want you to figure it out, well, I'll do that when I'm older. 
Very few of us ever feel older, just so you know. <laughs> our bodies get older, but we're still like 32 in our minds. You understand what I'm saying? Now I'll get an amen. <laughs> just understand, you're not going to do it later. Man, I'm going to work on my marriage later. Are you? You mean when we get in the counseling office? Jesus actually wants love. He doesn't just want fear. Does that make sense? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you have loved us extravagantly, lavishly. You have gone and moved heaven and earth to send your only son to die for us because of your extreme love. You have changed historical events. You have done miracles. You have done things in our lives, Lord, to demonstrate your love. God, I pray that you would break through the distraction of this world, the hold that the world, the flesh, the devil has over us, that we don't see you as loving. We see you kind of mean sometimes, and that's a distorted perspective. Jesus, you came and you gave your life that we might be protected, that we might be cared for, that we might be provided for, that we might be with you forever. Your love is extreme. Holy Spirit, you come and indwell us. You have gone above and beyond to demonstrate your love for us. And so, God, I don't know why we can't feel it. I don't know why we're not responding to it. I don't know why we're not more vibrant and alive, but we need help because we're broken. God, we're never going to be more than what you make us. But yes, Lord, we understand that we're responsible for us keeping the fire burning in our hearts. I know you're going to get us home. You're bigger than our unfaithfulness, but wow, it sure seems like we could work a little bit on our relationship with you. So God, I pray right now that every one of my friends here, everyone that can hear me or see me, I pray that they would be vibrant and alive with you, that everyone would be excited at your return, this idea of finally, Jesus, I've been waiting for you, you're my everything, you're my hero, and, and then you ride into town and everything is made right. God, I don't want any of us uh, fearing, oh, I hope you don't catch us now. Because God, you're more important than everything else. We acknowledge that right now while we have clarity. You are important and more important than everything. So God, we dedicate our lives afresh to you. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next time.